So we'll be looking at Jonah, um, looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 today. And while you all turn there in your Bibles, I'm going to give us a little review on this um, from Jonah. Remember Jonah, that he runs, as it said, from the presence of the Lord. Because the Lord tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. And Jonah runs from the presence of the Lord. And remember what I brought out, how Jonah actually hated the Ninevites because they are the enemies of Israel. Uh, Nineveh being the capital city of Assyria, and the Assyrians were a thorn in the side of the, uh, the Israelites. I almost said the Egyptians. They probably are a thorn in their side too, but they're a thorn in the side of the Israelites. And Jonah did not want to see repentance granted to them. That's why he ran. He didn't run because he was like, oh no, the Ninevites. He ran because he's like, I can't stand those people. They, they are our sworn enemies, and I don't want you to grant them repentance, Lord. So I'm not going there. So he runs, and he gets on a ship headed the opposite direction. You remember? We had uh, Nineveh was over here. He fled to Tarshish. He went to, up to Joppa, got on the ship, paid the fee, got on the ship, and headed to Tarshish. And then God sends a great and violent storm that made even the sailors on the ship think that they were going to die. The men that their lives, their livelihood was living on the sea. And God sent a storm so strong that they thought they were going to die. And remember what they started to do? They started calling out to the pagan gods. And what did the pagan gods do? Nothing. The same thing that all pagan gods do. Nothing. And then they go get Jonah. They wake him up in the bottom of the boat. Remember, he is asleep. <laughs> you're, in this, you're in this storm. These sailors think they're going to die, and Jonah's sleeping on the bottom of the boat. They go down there and get, they get Jonah, and then they question Jonah. And Jonah professes that not only does his God, Yahweh, control the seas, he admits that it's because he is on the ship is why the storm was happening. So what did the sailors do? Well, first, they remember, they tried to row to, to land, they, didn't, they didn't want to just throw them overboard into the sea, so they tried to row to land. They could not row to land. God would not let them row to land. So then they do toss them into the sea. And then after they tossed them into the sea, they offered up sacrifices to Yahweh. And remember Jonah, after being tossed into the sea, he's in the sea. And remember Jonah's chapter 2, he is drowning and on the brink of death. He was getting ready to die. It said he's taken into water into his soul. He was about, about to die. It said he was in the belly of Sheol. And God sends a great fish to swallow. And then what does it do? He spends three days and three nights in the belly of that fish where he was praying to the Lord and acknowledging that salvation is of the Lord. And then that great fish vomits him out onto dry land. And that's how chapter 2 ended. And that's where we're at right now on chapter 3. I only have really two points. I mean, you could say possibly I have five points, but I got two major points. Uh, Jonah's trip to Nineveh. I almost labeled it Jonas. Jonah's all-expense-paid trip to Nineveh. Verses 1 and 2, let's read that. It says, and the, Lord, and the word of the Lord 
came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Jonah is now on dry land. He has seen God save, remember he saved those sailors in chapter 1. He saw God save a bunch of sailors on a ship. He's had, if you will, his time of revival in the belly of the fish. And now he's back on dry land and God speaks to him a second time on the matter. So let's stop for a second and think about this. Put ourselves in Jonah's shoes or sandals. Now the word of the Lord comes a second time with the same command. What do you think was going through Jonah's mind? I bet it wasn't to run this time. Remember, this is the same commandment that he gave him in chapter 1. He gives him again in chapter 3. And in chapter 1, he ran from the presence of the Lord. In chapter 3, he gives him the exact same command. He says he commanded him a second time. I bet you he didn't think about running. I bet you he didn't even have the slightest inclination of thought to run from the Lord. I don't know Jonah, but I know myself. And my mind would be like, it's not like I, I can go and do something else. Lord, you've given me no choice in this matter, right? Which makes me think, doesn't God just respect our free will choices? I mean, isn't he a gentleman? Isn't that some of the rhetoric that we hear today? I mean, it most certainly wasn't Jonah's free will that, that had him in the storm or in the belly of the fish. It's not Jonah's will either to be here on dry ground and being commanded to go to Nineveh again a second time. Jonah would have never chosen any of this. Remember, Jonah was a prophet in Israel. He wanted to stay in Israel. That's what he was doing. That's what He probably had a nice, secure place there in Israel, and God calls him to go to the Ninevites and preach to those people that you hate. And according to Jonah's will, he said no. Jonah would have chosen none of this. Yet God, in his sovereignty, sent forth the storm. He sent forth the whale. And now he is sending forth Jonah again. Let us remember that. Especially here in America, when we think we're just free to go about our life and make whatever decision we want and think that God just sits back and respects it. The God of the universe sovereignly ordains and orchestrates all things after the counsel of his own will. And we can clearly see this with Jonah. God's in control. So now, Jonah, for the second time, go and preach to these people, is what God says to him. Now look at verse 3. So Jonah arose. And went unto Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh. Like he would do anything else now, right? He didn't offer a complaint. He didn't make an excuse. You don't see that between verses 2 and 3. How many excuses did you see? None. He just went. And now notice, this city wasn't just some normal city. It was the capital city of Assyria. 
And it says, it's an exceeding great city. A mighty city, if you will. It wasn't like, say, Conway or Loris or Longs, or even like Myrtle Beach or North Myrtle Beach. This, it says, was a three days journey in the city. This is saying that it was a three days journey to pass through this city. It was about 60 miles from one end to the other. So it's not just saying it's a magnificent city. It's a beautiful city when it says a great city. It's saying it's a rather large city with a high population. I mentioned this before, and I think, I think in our first study, but Nineveh, we can compare it to the size of a city like Atlanta. That's about what Nineveh was like. That size of city. So we've seen Jonah's, Jonah's trip to Nineveh. The second point here is Jonah's message. In verse 4. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah enters in about a day's journey and then begins to preach. Now there's no mention of Jonah getting a shower. Remember, he just came up to the belly of a fish. There's no mention of him getting a shower, getting into his finest suit. What this man has went through before this, he stinks like a fish, I'm sure. He probably looked defeated because he was. Because I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to go to preach to these people. But God is making me do it. So he was defeated. And he probably didn't even brush his hair or his beard. <laughs> and in the middle of this great city preaching repentance to these people. Could you imagine that? You're stuck three days in the belly of a whale. You get out. You stink. You ain't brush your teeth. You ain't brush your hair. You ain't brush your beard. You got stinking clothes on. And you're standing in the middle of Atlanta preaching. Imagine what the people think when you're walking, when they're walking by you. And his message is, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. The message is clear and simple, is it not? It's not some great exposition through a book in the Bible. He didn't, doesn't grab Genesis and start in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and start expounding on God's word. He just says Nineveh was going to be overthrown in 40 days. Jonah wasn't waxing eloquent here. Jonah would not earn the nickname the Prince of Preachers here. His message was simple and Jonah probably looked like trash. Imagine that. It reminds me of John the Baptist in the wilderness. Living in the wilderness, what, what was John the Baptist's diet? It wasn't, you know, two cheeseburgers with just ketchup and four large fries and then Diet Coke. <laughs> it was locust and honey. He ate locust and honey and he, his clothing, what was it? It wasn't Versace. It was camel hair. Out in the wilderness. What about this? What about our King Jesus? Isaiah says, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. The greatest preachers in biblical times were not the most well-dressed, perfect smile and hair. And here with Jonah, this man probably stunk like dead fish as well. 
And not only that, he's preaching to people he doesn't even like. And preaching a message that he doesn't even want to preach. But our thought today is we must work on our homiletics and such to reach people, right? We must work on our art of preaching in order to reach people. We must have our sermons so perfectly outlined with three points in a poem. We must make sure all of our words are perfectly placed. Not so. Jonah is proof positive of this. Now, I'm not saying that we don't put work into our sermons and that we just jump into the pulpit and wing it. We should strive to make our sermons to be intelligible and structured. But we must realize that God can and often does use the worst of our sermons to bless the most people that are listening. I can say this from experience. The times when I preached on Sunday and was like, that was just terrible. I was so terrible. In the words of Charles Barkley, terrible. I was just terrible. That sermon was horrible today. And then I get four text messages throughout the week by people talking about how great the sermon was. Now, I don't like hearing how great the sermon was, but they said, that sermon convicted me. You said this, and it, it convicted me, and then I, you know, I had to do this in response to that. And those weeks that I got up there, and I was like, everything, I nailed that one. And then it's crickets all week. The response comes from God. So Jonah's message was simple. Jonah's appearance, I'm sure, was atrocious. And Jonah's desire was not even to be there. However, look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. God uses this small disobedient, grumpy prophet to save his elect. He used the mouth of the one that before he was in the belly of the whale was filled with water, couldn't breathe, about to drown. He used his mouth to proclaim his message. Now this simple, simple message by this small disobedient prophet led to the salvation of Nineveh, the great capital city. I want us to see three things from this before we close. And I have them labeled as sub-points, if you will. A. This was a large amount of people to be saved. B. This revival didn't last long. And C. The capital city will cry out against Israel, against Jerusalem. So A here, it was a large number of people. This wasn't just a few thousand people like what happened at Pentecost. This wasn't just some Billy Graham crusade. This number was huge. Turn it, if you will, to, um, just up to chapter 4 and verse 11. It says, And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? When it says six score thousand, that's, that's 120,000. 
120,000 that can't discern between their right hand and their left hand. And this is not talking about people like my wife. When I say turn right and she turns left. <laughs> this is talking about infants. This is talking about little, little ones that can't discern between their right hand and their left hand. So if he saved 120,000 children, that would put the people, the number of people saved around 500,000 because they saved their parents too, from the greatest of these unto the least of these. Around 500,000 people. So around a half a million people were saved by this disgruntled prophet's message. Now be here. The letter B. This revival didn't last long. You wouldn't know this if you just read through Jonah, but this event here, Jonah preaching to, to Nineveh and Nineveh being redeemed by our Lord happened in like 760 B.C. God destroyed Nineveh in 612 B.C. So it was 148 years later. God destroyed Nineveh. So within three to four generations after this great revival, God destroys, destroys the city. Which should show us the constant need to straighten the ship, right? This constant need to straighten the ship. Because men are sinners, if there isn't a constant fight to steer the ship in the right direction, it always tends towards liberalism, sinfulness, and chaos. So this is why it's imperative for men to stand up for what is right and to proclaim the gospel to every generation. And I'll get back to that in a, in a few. But Lastly, the letter C. This capital city will cry out against Israel. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. We've already seen this before in our study. I don't know if we looked at the Luke account or not, but Luke 11 in verse 29. It says, And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign. And there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so also shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. I mentioned this before when we were here, but I'm going to mention this again. He said, no sign shall be given to them, but the sign of Jonas. Jesus was pointing to the gospel with that. Jesus was already doing all kinds of signs, was he not? He was healing people. He was raising the dead. He was casting out demons. But he says, to this wicked generation, there shall be no sign given but the sign of Jonas. And the sign of Jonas was that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to go into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights and raise again. And he points to Jonah and says, 
that same thing. That sign of Jonas, that's what I'm talking about. But then notice it says, the men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation. They will rise up in the judgment. It says with, or, or this word could be translated, and I think it better fits the, this context, as against. They shall rise up against this generation and condemn it. And why will they condemn this first, gen, this first century generation of Jews? That's what he's talking about. The first, that first century generation of Jews, he's saying the Ninevites are going to rise up and condemn you. Why? Well, because the Ninevites repented from a simple message from a fish-smelling, disgruntled, small prophet who was a sinner like them. Who's standing in the middle of the city, stanking like fish, looking all ridiculous, and preaches, what does he say? Nineveh's going to be overthrown in 40 days. One sentence. Jesus spent three years. And when the Messiah came unto his own, his own received him not. Even though they saw his death, burial, and resurrection. You know one thing that happened? Jonah didn't get swallowed by a whale in the middle of Nineveh. He was out in the Mediterranean Sea when this happened. And then the, the whale spit him up onto land, and then he walked to Nineveh. They didn't witness Jonah in the whale. The people at Nineveh, the only way that they would think that he was telling the truth if he told them I was in the belly of a whale was because he smelled like it. But other than that, they, didn't, they wouldn't know. And if you came, somebody come walking into church right now and said, man, I just got out the belly of a whale, we probably wouldn't believe him. But Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. He was buried in Jerusalem. And he was risen in Jerusalem. They saw it. It was right there. They have no excuse. They saw it and they still refused to repent, but said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Could you imagine speaking those words? Ninevite, the Ninevites repent at the preaching of an almost in, insignificant prophet. If we didn't have the book of Jonah, you probably wouldn't even know who Jonah was. And this book is only four chapters long. Yet Jonah, or the Jerusalem doesn't repent from the preaching of the Lord of Lords. So Nineveh will rise up in the judgment against Jerusalem. So here's our application. What can we learn from this narrative? I've already mentioned pretty much all of it. So in no particular order. First, we as men should rise up and lead and fight against a constant tend towards liberalism and chaos. We should be lined up and ready to teach the up-and-coming generations. That does not mean necessarily everybody needs to be a pastor, but we should be willing. We're all called to discipleship. Every single one of us men 
should be women should be raising up the, the the younger women too but as men as we're supposed to be the leaders we're supposed to be the heads of our household we should be raising up this next generation we shouldn't be passive in this and say i've actually heard a father tell me i don't form i don't, I don't really formally teach my children i don't think i really need to do that but they'll learn as we go i can guarantee you that if you don't formally teach your children and your children's children, they will most certainly learn. And they will learn from the world. So it's our responsibility and obligation to take it upon ourselves to fight against this downward trend. And we know this. Second thing I want us to see is you don't need to have a PhD or a THD or any other paper given to you from men to take forth the message from God. God has called us to take forth his message. Nowhere in scripture do we find a call to submit to some organization before we can preach. Now I'm not talking about pastoring because we do have qualifications within the scriptures for the pastor. I'm talking about preaching the gospel. God has called all of us to do that, and we ought to be out there doing it. When it comes to pastoring, obviously we have the qualification and, and things that men should do before they become a pastor. However, all pastors are preachers, but not all who preach are pastors. And as preachers, we should not spend so much time worried that God won't use it unless we look perfect and speak perfect. How many times have that disrailed us from evangelism? I'm so scared to go talk to this person because what if I don't have all the answers? What if I say the wrong thing? God's word will not return void. And we can see that with Jonah. It's not necessarily about the messenger, but the message. Remember Moses? He said he was a man of slow speech. And when he stood before Pharaoh, and preached. So get out there and preach. And lastly, just obey God the first time. That way he doesn't have to come and say it the second time. I don't know the time between Jonah chapter 1, how much time was between Jonah chapter 1 when God commands him to go and Jonah chapter 3, the second time that God commands him to go. I don't know how much time was in between that, but I do know the events, right? We have the events recorded, and if Jonah would have went the first time, we probably wouldn't have the book of Jonah. And if we did, it would probably only be like one chapter. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, so he went and preached, and they were saved. Delayed Obedience, delayed obedience is disobedience. If you come across something in God's word, obey it. Don't think, well, not today, not this week, not yet, I'm still young, or not anymore because now I'm old. Just obey it. God has called us to obey him, and we can all readily admit that life works much better when we do. Amen.